0: opens with a TikTok. Taken at the popular Consumer Electronics Show hosted in Las Vegas every January, the video shows an AI-based anti-cheating software being showcased by Samsung. Known as Prober, the video shows a student taking a test with the software analysing their movements and flagging certain moves as abnormal. That TikTok went viral with over 1.6 million views to date and prompted a deluge of comments and articles about the cost and potential bias of such systems. So if even TikTok is talking about EdTech in 2022, is this the year that the topic is really going to come to the forefront of big tech brands' minds and strategies? Joining us today to discuss this topic, as well as exactly what we mean by the EdTech industry and why we're seeing such growth, is Ben Clayson, CEO of Victus, and Jeff Chapman, uh, industry expert who has years of experience working with EdTech companies and exam owners alike. Uh, Jeff co-founded World Exam Tech, the journal for assessment executives and investors, as well as founding his own platform, Act Education, that brings together exam owners and markers. He's a frequent blog poster and social media commentator on all things edtech, so we're really delighted to welcome him today. So thanks for being here, Jeff.
1: Oh, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. So yeah, like I said, this whole thing starts with the TikTok that I saw a couple of weeks ago. Um, So what are the big tech companies doing in this space in terms of ed tech or assessment tech?
1: A lot of the big brands that we know and love, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, AWS, Microsoft, that they've all had their own certification exams for a number of years now, Um, obviously delivered internationally. And... That IT sector was really at the forefront, or one of the pioneers of moving exams on screen, you know, and then into test centres, and then to remote proctoring or remote invigilation. But are they really engaged in the assessment space? Well, assessments, as as we know, around the table, it, it's very heavily regulated. It's very emotive as well. You know, a lot of people have something to say um, about assessment. You know, nearly everybody's been through some sort of education system. It's interesting because. Those brands, um, you'd expect them to make a, a big play in, in education and, in some instances, they have through the hardware. Others, as you say, in, in terms of you know TikTok and the more recent ones, yes, they're they, they taking a look at it. But are they actually pushing their own education um, programs? Some of the, the hardware guys, that's what they did uh, back in the day for their IT cert programs. Basically, it was a way of, of shifting kit. So you're using that education program to basically have those sponsors, those advocates within a corporate to say, we could do with a new Windows Server edition and we need the education program to, to back that up. So a, a way of evangelizing, if you like, um, you know, through an organization to buy more kits. There are exceptions, but that's mainly what, what they're involved with.
0: You look, Sorry to interrupt, you. do you no, think you're ahead. making them uh, deliberately um, confusing, so to force people to have to <laughs> buy these uh, training programs from them? Um, that's
1: that's an interesting point of view. <laughs> um, I, I think it's part of a multi-pronged strategy, obviously, when you look at the different, how they call them channels to market or routes to market. Um, one would be you're getting certain kits through your, your big box providers, get, getting it through certain other distribution channels, uh, consumer channels as well. And education is, is one of those, mm. obviously school market university markets they buy kit so this is one efficient route to market if you will
0: okay
2: and who would be the uh, evangelists that you are talking about in terms of within organizations for these types of things
1: pretty much your cto um anybody who's involved with that procurement process uh to, to buy a new kit or is uh, responsible for the refresh of that kit uh, normally um obviously if your organization is more you know historically more of a tech bent, if that makes sense. If, you, if you're more in, into that technology side of things, you will have other stakeholders wanting to know what's going on. So obviously your FD would be interested. But also from an L&D point of view, if your organisation is heavily regulated, say in financial services, and you're trying to move um, into more modern technology platforms, perhaps for you are know, um, trying to automate certain back office processes, then of course you're going to have a stake in, um, in what's been bought as well. But am I right in thinking it's mainly kind of IT professionals who are
2: engaging in these training programs, and um, and that there's a degree of sort of value to these qualifications, as in they are career uh, qualifications that then can help people access better or different uh, working opportunities?
1: Yeah, yes, is a short answer. Um, the, the the gender balance has, has always been a bit out of kilter as well. You know. You go to any of the big tech providers education conferences and yeah, it's 95% at least male. Mm. Um, you know, It's very stark when you, when you see that uh, gender imbalance. But, um, but the programs themselves, they are genuinely worldwide. You, you can be anywhere in the world and follow that path depending on what you want to do. If you want to be a database uh, writer, if you want to work in that field, then yeah, you can follow Oracle's path no matter where you are in the world. And obviously the assessment follows that. What we are seeing is organisations that are trying to look at different ways of assessing rather than just pure theoretical exams. So you have organisations looking at simulation where an actual task is on a server somewhere and uh, uh, whoever the, that learner is, they'll be able to actually go into that environment and, and, and solve a problem uh, actually on there. So that has certain technology demands and I think that that's part of the solution. It won't be the entire thing, but it, it will be a mixed economy in that respect. The, the, the type of assessment, if you think of the assessment toolkit, if you will, um, you know, simulations or portfolios of work, they'll be in there with the theoretical tests, but um, I think it's only relatively recently where enough learners and enough places have that um, infrastructure to, to deliver. <laughs>
2: Carly, can you tell us a bit more about the video that appeared on TikTok and describe what was going on, Yeah, Tell us about what absolutely.
0: happened. Um, so like I said, it was a, a guy that's obviously attending CES in Las Vegas, which is one of the, well, is the world's largest kind of showcase from big tech providers of all of their new stuff. Um, and Samsung each year does um, a sort of innovation incubator uh, where they feature obviously things that they've plucked from around the world from different sectors. Um, and Proba, or I'm, I'm presuming that's how you pronounce it, um, was showcased. And the video uh, showed... A student sat at their desk at a computer, presently um, taking an exam. Um, there was then an overlay, um, which was AI based, uh, that was monitoring their head movements, their body movements. And yeah, in the in the video, the guy kind of leaned back from his desk and looked like he might be looking over someone's shoulder. A big thing flagged up on screen that shouted abnormal. Um, and like it's interesting because the guy in the TikTok obviously was saying like cheaters beware
2: so it's very much part of this whole trying to use tech to prevent cheating and malpractice in an examination. Um,
0: yeah. And the interesting thing is that a lot of the commenters um, on on that video itself, and then obviously it's been picked up by the wider media, are saying why are organisations paying for a technology like this when really they should be investing that money in the education itself rather than you know paying for a, a big piece of technology that's just there to help you know, uh, prevent cheating.
2: Yeah, so I've got a question for you, Jeff, based (laughs) on your experience and that description. And yourself, Carly, too, do we think that the majority of candidates are trying to cheat their way through exams and therefore need every aspect of their body language and movement and behaviour and uh, eye movements and so on to be tracked and analysed by, effectively, a robot? Or is this perhaps looking at the problem from a completely distorted perspective. And perhaps what the commentators are saying is actually the legitimate point, which is that perhaps the quality of the education experience, the quality of the assessment experience ought to be the principal mm-hmm. consideration. Um, and is the tech better suited to being a tool that supports people as they go through assessments? It,
1: it, it's really interesting because the, the rate of change in technology far outstrips the rate of change within education and assessment. Mm-hmm. And so you do have that imbalance also, as well, the, the communities that are, are trying to be served, um, you know, very, very different for lots of different reasons. There are certain cultures where there's a lot more emphasis placed on high-stakes e- exams than others. So if there's a lot of pressure to achieve in, in you know, a cliff face exam, as they call it, then, of course, it will lead itself to certain behaviours. Um, so all that's not new, but I think what is new is when you start to push through uh, and again that the, the pandemic's um, been a, a classic example of this where we've tried to push uh, technology uh, to solve an issue you know exam delivery um, and it's only worked to a certain extent um I, I think the industry hasn't done a great job in getting that message across to those communities to say how things have changed how we're doing uh, proctoring and vigilation differently you are pushing that responsibility onto the onto the candidate Whereas the the previous service encounter will be just turn up and sit down. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're changing that to do your room scan, make sure everything's locked down, that is a a big burden and not everybody can cope with that, especially um, in an exam situation where you're under enough stress anyway trying to perform. um, Having all that responsibility pushed onto you is probably not a a great recipe for a good outcome, I, I would say. So I think the industry's got to be a lot better in not just communicating that and and through PR and everything else, but to say there are are different ways, um, there are different techniques to help that in a high-stakes environment. But to what what you you said, Ben, harking back to something I said a little while ago, that assessment toolkit um, isn't always held up um, under the microscope to see if it's actually any good and if it's appropriate. You you will get a lot of assessment owners, uh, exam owners, saying, well, Of course, high-stakes exams are the the best um, measurement tool because look at all the research behind them. Well, of of course, an assessment owner would say that if they're delivering (laughs) a lot of high-stakes exams for sure. But let's look at some of those other uh, things in in the toolkit. I mean, in in terms of big tech players, Carly, you've got people like Sony who've... um, They've got a blockchain product for the, the um, schools and universities. And, yeah, the Ministry of Education runs the annual uh, Global Math Challenge um, mm-hmm. in, in Japan for that. And you've got kind of a quarter million learners going through that. Um, but that is, you know, technology now. Here we are in 2022. Um, that, that's, yeah, relatively established in lots of different sectors. You know, it, it's used in fintech, in, in medical. It, it's used in plenty of places. But nobody's really talking about those tools that are in, in the toolkit um, because they're claiming quote unquote, there's no evidence behind them in though, you've got lots of usage cases Mm -hmm. right around the world. Um, So yeah, when when something happens at CES, it doesn't necessarily play back to the assessment sphere in in Western Europe.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think one of the
2: interesting things about the video is it highlights that kind of focus on the tech. And obviously it's uh, in a tech uh, exhibition, so that makes sense. But I think it's interesting that you have big tech uh, names, Microsoft and Google and Amazon and others providing certification schemes for all sorts of different uh, qualifications. Then looking at the assessment experience itself, like you're saying, Jeff, people get stressed, people get really anxious about exams. Um, Technical problems such as internet connectivity and so on can Mm -hmm. exacerbate that. And it seems to me that the kind of... The idea of reliance on um, an overlaid box that will suddenly flash up an alert saying this is abnormal. It doesn't, to my mind, really kind of do anything to allay any of those anxieties. It's the kind of referring back to the very uniquely human experience of having to go through a high stakes assessment. I'm not sure or, or I'm not convinced at this point that that's adequately met by algorithms.
0: No, and I think the interesting mm. thing about the whole thing is that as much as saying sort of ces is like a tech focused show which of course is is actually very widely recognized and it's reported in kind of you know normal media not just kind of specific media as well right. so that's what really interested me about about this fact that it's like going on to TikTok, which people see as maybe like uh, stupid or side or something or not you know but um it's obviously the most popular platform that there is at the moment so I think it's incredibly interesting that that topic is even being yeah is being focused on that platform and I think it's indicative of a wider kind of trend that people are thinking more about examinations they're thinking more about how they're being um, watched or assessed and you know when they are taking examinations.
1: I get so frustrated when I see reports published that try to talk about malpractice and they talk about what's being done and yeah, we, we all know that um, you know, different tools are being used by learners to conduct malpractice and, and other people within that ecosystem. Um, and then you get a report published that says, oh, we should ban watches from the exam hall. <laughs> well, you know, guys, we've got to do better than that. We've got to understand the whole vista of not, not just what's being used, but how you educate somebody to say, look, if if this happens, then the exam um, itself will. If it's got no confidence in the wider community, then, then there's no point in running the exam. If you're going to an employer and with a certain exam, and that exam has been in the in the in the press around cheating and everything else, they're going. Well, is it actually worth anything? So if there's no confidence in the exam, then yeah, the whole system comes crumbling down. It's all about confidence, and I don't feel confident when I see those reports that say band watchers uh, i think it needs to be a a much deeper and wider review of how not just prevent prevention but also education um not just learners as well this isn't their fault this is more to do with the environment in which you know the learning's taking place it's about the educators and and the other people who've got stakes um in in that whole assessment arena yeah i think that
2: Something that's often overlooked in relation to professional exams is that there's this big focus on learners and their malpractice and people cheating, individuals cheating, when the reality is that professional training providers, of which there are thousands in the UK alone, they arguably have more of an interest in um, being engaged in Nefarious activities like trying to get copies of exam questions and so on, because they actually have a ready market of people that may pay to get those resources from them. Individual candidates may cheat, and you know, there will always be a small percentage of people that want to try and gain an advantage. But is that where the really kind of commercial activity is going and is focusing on just the learners actually really kind of missing the point? Is it sort of it's to me, it seems like a risk assessment that's on a bit askew
1: that's that's a really good point i mean the, the panorama the the uk um current affairs program did a big expose on english testing um about three or four years ago now and yeah um that, that's what happens basically you, you've got those training providers who have an interest in a, in a good outcome quote unquote um so it, it's it's driving the wrong behaviors um now if i'm a candidate and i'm turning up um for, for a test and somebody's at the front saying 17 is B or 18 is this, then you're thinking, oh, well, if everybody else is doing it, 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 it's classic um, cohort behavior. You know, if somebody else is doing it, well, well, this seems to be acceptable. Uh, Why am I doing it? Why would I be the wrong one out? So, yeah, it's, um, I think, again, through the pandemic and even beforehand, where you've seen um, instructor-led training uh, move to more of a home learning environment, that could be a catalyst for, for change, for really pushing that responsibility back onto the learner. You remember when I talked about pushing the responsibility in terms of remote invigilation? Mm-hmm. I think in the training aspect, that could be interesting as well, where you're more... You know, you're communicating with, with, with peers online. You, you, you're getting... You're able to access different advice around a subject, no matter where it is in the world, not just your your tutor at the, at the private training um, centre. But um, you, you you probably want to engage um, deeper because you've got that community uh, and you're able to access mastery level um, knowledge and understanding of a subject as well, which is great. If you get somebody engaged in in a subject and they want to pursue it, I mean, that's that's gold dust for anybody who owns um, a qualification programme, an education programme, you know, that is real trail to grave. So I think that move from instructor led to more home-based, I think that's really, really interesting. So Carly,
2: you've got personal experience of this um, situation of having to deal with learning at home and then undertaking an assessment um, yourself and exactly as Jeff's talking about, you had the responsibility of going through that setting up and dealing with the monitoring um, personally. So my question is, when you're doing that in an exam, how does it feel? Because To me it feels, and I haven't got experience of it like (laughs) yourself, but to me it feels a bit like um, an extension of the whole surveillance society um, sort of situation. Now I understand there's a requirement for monitoring people during an assessment, a Mm. high stakes exam, um, but how does it feel when you as a learner candidate suddenly have to take on the responsibility for monitoring yourself in that particular situation?
0: Yeah I think it's or um, well personally I found the experience quite frustrating because when it doesn't go right it's like I said the onus is on me as the learner to fix it so in my case it was I didn't have the right webcam or something like that it's a very specific piece of technology that I needed that I didn't have um, so that delayed my exam by a, a few days or something and obviously then when you're taking exam as you said you're kind of emotional it's an emotive experience you're, you're building up you've kind of prepped for that exact hour or that you know that exact day that you're going to take the exam and then when it doesn't happen because of something that feels quite out of your own control even though you think you've read all of the instructions and followed everything for then a disembodied voice on a, on a computer screen to tell me oh no you can't do it today is yeah it's incredibly frustrating um, and it definitely knocks you off your course in terms of uh, how prepared you feel for the exam and maybe probably well, definitely in my experience, then the next time I went into it, you know, my heckles were up. I was quite compat- combative going into mm-hmm. the situation, so yeah. I was like, "I'm I'm determined to to do the exam this time," um, which probably wasn't a very nice experience for the invigilator that I was working with because I was already going in with kind of a, a bad attitude, I guess, because I'd already had a bad uh, because I'd already had a bad experience. So maybe that wasn't fair on them, but it must be something that people who you know do online invigilation must experience all the time It's just the frustration of candidates when things don't go. Their way, And especially, you know, the exam I was taking was nothing to do with technology. Yeah. Um, so why should I be expected as a learner to know, to be able to follow some quite detailed specifications for technology when the exam I was doing was on a totally unrelated topic?
1: I mean, who looks at the instruction booklet for uh, when they g- you get a new phone? Exactly. Nobody. Exactly. You've got to ensure the service encounter is reflective of uh, what people are used to you know, what your, your learners and candidates are, are used to and if they're used to well it, it should be you know plug and play or get yourself up and running in in 30 seconds you need to have solutions that's the that, that play to that rather than play against people no wonder you're gonna get um you know people feeling antagonistic people feeling upset if they're having to wade through something that's It goes completely against what they're used to, for sure.
0: Exactly. Is that something you think is indicative of the industry then that it's not quite at that intuitive plug-and-play style, um, both for assessment tech and for kind of the edtech platforms out there?
1: Absolutely, spot on. Yeah. I shouldn't beat these guys over the head too much, but um, oh, feel free. (laughs) It's well, yeah, Um, but it is an entirely different service encounter. Um, When you look at some of the public domain. commentary around that switch from regular invigilation to remote proctoring, some of those providers will say, well, we, we didn't, our, our clients weren't asking for it and we didn't invest much in it. And you're making a lot of these excuses as to why they didn't um, you know, pivot quickly enough or, and effectively. It's upsetting in a lot of ways because you can see it coming, but still you didn't do anything. Um, mm-hmm. And that's trying to turn the tank around you know, in a corporate sense, yeah, absolutely. That, that that's what happens if you're of a certain size. But basically, that, that that pushes all that stress onto your learners, mm. uh, and that shouldn't be happening. You know, professional PR, plug and play products, you know, designed from from the ground up. Which, again, I, mean, I hate repeating myself on this, but you've you've got to you know have user forums. Um, I mean, there's one very big um, school exam board in, in England that's only just recently started um, with a, a candidate forum. You're know, actually talking to people who, who take the exams because they're providing a service. All of their revenue is for this service, but they never spoke to the actual kids who are taking the exams. I mean, how nuts is that? It, it, it's just unbelievable. You know, every exam owner should have that, that 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 sort of information coming to them on a regular scheduled basis. Um in any other business, if you weren't getting user feedback, you'd, you'd be out the door. You know That's marketing 101. Yeah, I think it's the,
2: it's the scale of high-stakes exams globally um, and the fact that historically um, you've got candidates who are obviously key stakeholders who seem to be given um, less sort of opportunity to have constructive input into the experience. And then the lockdowns and remote proctoring requires them to be involved but they were not used to it. Now things are changing again. So we're looking at candidates potentially coming back into centres. So how does that then work in terms of candidates taking responsibility for anything? Are they supposed to just hand back over responsibility? Um, Because I don't think that will work very well because I think the video on TikTok, particularly the comments, is indicative of what you were saying, Carly, about these people paying attention now to the quality of their own experience. And rightly so, because most of them are paying for it
1: absolutely yeah again when you see a, a lot of the stories like here we are in february 22 and your uk cost of living you're going through the roof inflation in terms of disposable income a, a lot of people are saying look this is very very valuable You know, it's a big chunk of my um disposable income that i'm spending on my own education i, I want a, a good service for it it's, you know comparable to what i'm used to in in other environments and um if they do start to go back to the test centres and they, they they start to see that cognitive dissonance, if you like, of good service versus bad service, they're going to ask questions, and with social media, they've got the the voice now to start really not just discussing it, but to really you know going hammer and tongs, as they say. So um, again, um, are exam owners set up to handle that? Are, are they set up to articulate themselves through social media? I don't see any evidence of that, to be quite frank.
2: Yeah, so the technology's there, it's available, it's great, it does really interesting things. um, But like any tool, it sort of um, depends very much on the users. I think that was my kind of takeaway from that video, Um, yeah, over-focus on technology kind of. It's oh, a big gaping hole.
0: Absolutely, because like I said, it's easy for us. We're in the industry, we know kind of what's out there, but an AI monitoring technology isn't new. <laughs> you no. know, it's not it's not new it's not a new piece of technology, um, either as a piece of technology for other applications or in the assessment industry. However, what is new is the fact that, yeah, it's being showcased on a very mm-hmm. public platform. So I want to roll it back slightly. We're all in the assessment industry, we kind of know what it means. But I want to help explain that to other people. So, what would you say is the edtech, the assessment industry? Who's working in it? What are we actually looking at?
1: It, it's uh, what can I say? A, a great industry to be in, and <laughs> uh, it's been a bit of a privilege to work for it as many years as I have. I, I think, in terms of uh, you know what the catalyst is, obviously the, the internet is you know the, the, the big driver for it. Um, but also, as well, um, reach, and by that I mean organizations that want to be uh, the voice of their industry you know they may own an exam they may own education programs um, but they want to influence policy they want to spread their wings internationally and internet delivered um, assessments and education is is a method to do that so uh, I mentioned before about um, the IT sector but also financial services uh, the, the medical profession those sectors that have certain demands. Um, So in the medical sector, if there's a a shortage of a particular profession, then you can use the education program to plug that gap. Um, If I'm um, a, a medical organization in one of the GCC, Middle East countries, I can set up an education program that can ensure that people who are coming from other countries like sri lanka and philippines to work are of the standard that i'm looking for so it, it fulfills that particular gap if you like that, that particular need in terms of what um the the, the technology play i mean it, it it's interesting it, it's it's the old cliche of uh, if you hang around long enough you you, you see the, the technology come back you know twice maybe even three times so things such as internet delivered uh, tests yeah, you know, you're talking 20 plus years where that's been possible and, and have been done. But as the infrastructure globally has, has caught up, then, you know, people like me will say, well, yeah, we could have been doing this for a long time ago, but for lots of different reasons, it, it, it was it was never done. We mentioned at the start about education and assessment being very emotive. Lots of people um, not just have, have a have a say, but lots of stakeholders to to, to look after as well so when you see a piece of research like what Ofqual did with with YouGov um last year that they said well if you're looking at delivering school tests online who who the the, the people or, or the groups of people that would uh, would like that or wouldn't like that and the research showed that head teachers were the the the, the people who were most against that so Even though the technology exists and you've got practice in lots of different sectors around the world, even within Western Europe and the UK, those stakeholders still need to be convinced for lots of different reasons. So if I'm a head teacher, do I want um, exams delivered off site where I don't have that control over my own kingdom, if you like, from my own school or my own, own academy chain? Those questions aren't being asked at the moment not uh, obviously um we, we talk about you know, students and you know uh, teachers themselves will have to undergo you know, certain tests before they become fully qualified but for, for, for heads that that's something which is still got to be de- debated it, it it still needs to be convinced about why it's beneficial for not just my my school but also my pupils and also the, the people who work for me again i, I don't think the sector has done a great job in in, in reaching out to, to, to people like that and explaining how it, how it works outside the school arena. Um, whether that's down to the vendors or whether that's down to unions or governments, I, th- I think it's a mix of them. Um, it's probably because nobody wants to take a, a very um, a, a very sharp thistle, if you see what I mean. They, they, they don't want to grasp that thistle uh, right at the moment. But I, I think there's an understanding that there are certain um, groups of people who say, we still yet to be convinced about this. So I think that's where some of those blockers to rolling up the technology uh, and and the new solutions are coming from.
2: So I would suggest that the uh, effects of lockdown has been a kind of rapid acceleration of the, certainly the consideration, if not the adoption of technology-based solutions to kind of assessing people. And then, um, yeah, you've kind of got people being forced to look at things differently and um, trying to find different ways of um, delivery for assessments because perhaps they're um, Revenue kind of depends on those assessments. But in terms of education, kind of endpoint assessment or sort of high stakes assessment really has changed very little since the sort of industrial revolution. Um, and it's interesting to consider whether um, my generation, which began with no internet whatsoever and then suddenly had an internet um, at the age of 16, which was great. Um, and subsequent generations that are digital natives for want of a better sort of descriptor. Um, As they kind of grow and then turn into senior leaders in different industries, all all the ones that you mentioned and plus so many others, um, it's likely I think that they're gonna be much more receptive to those kind of technology first, um, or yeah, technology driven things like um, assessments that have traditionally been a bit more manual and a bit more traditional. that make sense yeah for you, sure for, for
1: sure I mean in in um on the ground you know in in skills um they'll be using a lot of different kits for different different things um you know whether it's, you know basic programming with your know, purple Mash or you know, different devices for, for r- recording m- media and there comes a certain point where they go you've got to put the tech down and learn how to write for three hours mm. for me that's the kind of cliff face for me it's that's the moment that we need to change Um, it's you have to learn a different skill um, for a very short period of time and yeah once you go into the workplace that skill really isn't needed Uh, and you think well it's only it, 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 it's serving the system it's not serving the learner's journey it's not serving. It's not actually serving the qualification in some respects because no. of that manual yeah, piece that you mentioned yesterday instead of tomorrow
0: it's like the standard yeah. thing of when you're at school your teacher's like well you won't have a calculator forever and yeah. now everybody has a high powered scientific calculator in yeah. their phone at all times That's so you it. don't need to learn how to do trigonometry
2: no and I regularly do long division absolutely <laughs> <laughs> I think I had to yeah.
0: Google how to do long division the other day Yeah,
1: I'm impressed that you needed to <laughs> <laughs> I think um, as, as you said Ben that the pandemic has it's not changed attitudes and it's shown a very harsh light on current practice and you know, what, what's bad about it and why it's so divergent from all of the assessment that, that, that's, that that's, has gone either on screen or online and I, I did mention in the blog quite recently that it's becoming harder to find examinations that haven't been pushed online um, if I'm a small membership body uh, and part of um, how I get members is for them to sit an exam to prove um, they've got mastery of what I'm into. Um, those, those smaller guys don't necessarily want to be investing in big analog uh, solutions. If there's something which can be bought relatively easily in a digital form and able to be um, dispersed or sold worldwide, then that's a real boon for me um, as a small organization. Um, you know, don't have big startup costs. I'm not having to rely on couriers sending papers everywhere. That plays to how I look after my business, how I look after my members. So if I'm able to reach my members through various different online platforms, it, it would seem a bit strange for me to say, and you know to be a member, you've, you've got to fill in the, a big bunch of papers and uh, sit an exam with a, with a big bunch of paper as well. It, it, do you see what I mean? It, it's that um, cognitive dissonance or it's, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Why are you trying to shoehorn an analogue process into my digital world?
0: I think that brings me on uh, to something I wanted to ask you, which is about the the kind of market in general. Are we talking about a few big players in terms of edtech and assessment tech, or is there a, you know, is there a kind of long tail at the end of it? What does it look like?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, it's um it's a generally global um sector, which is great. Um, you know, there's lots of examples of good practice, scale, um, innovation. Um, it's It's sometimes unfortunate that the people who make policy decisions don't recognize that. Um, But when you look at the the numbers behind it um, and who who we're serving, um, I mean, if you include universities, um, you're looking around about 34,000 organizations that run a high-stakes exam around the world. They're generally served in the ed tech or assessment space, if you will. You know, about 160, 170 organisations that will say, yeah, we, we provide test software, um, a platform for high stakes. So that includes um, you authoring the test, delivering them, and obviously the reporting on the back end. And, yeah, obviously the, the, the pandemic's really brought to bear the, um, the people who, who do remote invigilation, and there are about 90, almost 100 of those organisations that uh, are into that. They are generally global, Um organizations in America in the UK Netherlands India um I think what's interesting is that from a, again speaking as a Brit um there's more of a realization now that we do export assessment uh and we do it rather successfully so I mean in again for the numbers you you're probably looking around about 40 million exams uh, delivered in the UK but we ex- export a further uh, 11 million. So to me, that, that says that um, UK education actually resonates um, in lots of places around the world. And I think it's important that as um, we're trying to win over um, people in, in in the bigger general qualifications market, that we bring that um, success story to bear. We, we don't talk about that success um, for, for lots of different reasons, which I often find very difficult to fathom. To UK PLC, to have that sort of export um, is, is a really big success story, um, You know, wh- whether it's um, a, an organisation in a, in a country that wants to develop its, its own programme but needs expertise to say how do you set up a, um, a qualification programme, an education programme. To basically bringing in a, a Brits uh, on the supplier side to say we want to run remote invigilation, can you can you do it for us? Because we know you guys are good. So I think it's a, a great success story in in that respect. I think what the pandemic has um, helped with as well is plug into some of those trends. Um, you know, the, the assessment sector does lend itself to the gig economy in, in lots of ways. Whether it's you know remote invigilation or Item writers or, or psychometricians—you know the people who analyse how exams are performing—so it, it, it does lend itself to um, what's going on in, in wider society. You know, this isn't all about we hope—you um, know—stuffy nine-to-five um, in, in, in big bad offices uh, in, in, in plenty of places. I think the irony is that a lot of exams are still delivered by those sorts of organisations. You know, those, those, those nine-to-five big places. I think it'll be interesting once we get through the, the pandemic in terms of will those organisations change or are we going to see a new wave of organisations who can do it better uh, using you know, different techniques as we've discussed, being able to discuss um, and talk about the different um, items in the assessment toolkit um, and, yeah, d- deliver a better experience but also deliver it quicker and probably with a better price point as well to the um, to the learner.
0: When we're talking about the scale of the industry, how many people are we actually talking about here, both sort of UK internationally?
1: Oh, crikey! I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a hell of a question. Um, I mean, in terms of the supply base, within an assessment, you, you're looking at a value around between eight, eight to ten billion. Um, but what makes the the, you know, the people calculation difficult is the nature of how you know, exams are made and, and delivered. You know, the whole gig economy. Um, you know, the, the proctors, the item writers, the markers. Um, you know, these aren't nine to five people. I mean, the the great irony is that a a lot of those big exam programs are are still um, owned by organizations in the the nine to five old stuffy offices environments. I think what we're going to see, you know, um, a a new wave of organization that is able to look at new techniques, uh, proven techniques from around the world um, and and pull together a, a better assessment toolkit that, doesn't um, negatively impinge on learners but helps them perform uh, to the best of their ability um, rather than you know, g- g- going through the old ways which um, I've got a ton of research behind them. You know, those new wave of organisations will be able to deploy a lot quicker, be able to create assessment which is more meaningful um, but also deliver it with, with a better price point. Um, so yeah, it, it's hard to you know pin a tail on how many people are, are, are employed if you, if you want to use employed in the uh, traditional sense um so so yeah um that expertise that uh, you know uk expertise is is really cherished and i think we that should be leveraged a lot more in in terms of what we could be doing um not just uh, outside the uk but to improve what we we already do
0: so let's dive specifically into uh, remote invigilation or remote proctoring as it's known in the us um, as we've already discussed today, uh, the pandemic was a huge driver in the growth of that market. Do you want to tell me a bit more about what we're seeing there?
1: The way of delivering exams is, um, yeah, traditionally, uh, it's been around for, for you know, hundreds and thousands of years. You know, the, you know, the Chinese civil service exams were are often cited as, as being the first one. So we've really lived through a, a, a big sea change, um, you know, through the pandemic. Um, a lot of organizations have sprung up you're looking at almost 100 suppliers offering different flavors of, of um of the solution but yeah, there is a bit more to the story i mean when, when you to scratch below the surface um you do have those organizations of pure play um suppliers who've done you know very well through the pandemic and those guys you know they're, they're probably trading at around about 200 million uh collectively um so that's, that's actually not bad from being kind of esoteric left field solution that's you know two or three years ago people were kind of puzzled and scratching their heads is what's it all about. But those organizations uh, and others have taken a lot of the pioneer pain. Um, you know, trying to deliver a service transition from traditional exam delivery to remote proctoring. Um, we've talked about the messaging side of things, but also the risk profile of exam delivery. The risks of delivering something on a desk on paper are, are very different to on screen. Um, you know, pushing that responsibility to the candidates that we've talked about. Um The traditional um, suppliers are still in that mix. Um, What I find interesting, when you look at those public domain numbers for the traditional suppliers who've managed to pivot, not all of their exam volume has gone on to remote invigilation. It's between 13 and 18% um, in terms of that that transition, which is interesting. Um, Now, for some candidates, Finding a place at home for remote education is a complete non-starter. You know, it could be a busy family home with young children. Um, it could be a home of multiple application or you've got a geography that's internet challenged. Uh, those those um, candidate bases are still wanting a traditional test center solution, so it's not for everybody. Um, and I think we're only you know, really at the, at the tip of the iceberg for a lot of um, a lot of movement towards remote re- proctoring. And again, that, that's probably a symptom of the sector and the supplier is not doing a great job um, or, or could be, could do a better job in articulating what you need to do and what, what that looks like for, for the end user. So it is a, t- it's a totally different service encounter. Um, I mean, we've just seen um, there's a Europe, high profile European supplier that was sold to a British arm of a US supplier in the higher education space. And, you know, when you read about those companies and you talk to their customers, absolutely, you know, they've, they've done a fair job and they're doing a fair job, but could they do better? Um, I guess that's something that the new owners are going to be thinking about. It's, well, invigilation, remote well, protein's grown despite uh, a lot of the supplier behaviour, despite um, a lot of things that have gone on, um, you know, in education, the clients and the, and the learners. And, yeah, for organisations and people with who, who've got the... Um, the monetary backing to invest in tech and and assessment, they're they're going to be looking at that to say, well, what could be done better? Are we reaching the right people that we need to? And that investment side is is something really, really interesting to talk about. So, yeah, for uh, acquiring companies or venture capital or or private equity houses, it's not always about backing um, an already successful winner. Uh, A good acquirer will understand the addressable markets, the scale, the back office, the product lines, um, if the management are high-performing. Uh, obviously, no, no. Don't get me wrong. Some will just uh, flip for a quick profit. You know that that does go on, but o- others who want to invest will try and bring in expertise and financing to increase the value of, of what they're doing. And uh, I said before, we, we've seen that happen in Europe. Um, uh, there's also a, a software company I can think of which um, they brought in experienced private equity backing, not to, just to pay for revenue growth, but to enhance the management from an unrelated sector. So they identify that, yeah, it's a good product, but the management could do with um, you know, turning up a couple of notches. And, yeah, the the, the acquired and the acquiring companies uh, were in different assessment spaces and approached the market in very different ways, but, but very complementary ways in, in, in some respects. So it's understanding that, yeah, they're doing great, but they could be doing better um, and getting that outside expertise in. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's a kind of sweet spot really, where you've got those slightly different approaches, but it, it's complementary. Uh, but there's still headroom for improvement. You see this in the um, in the membership space as well. I mean, it's adjacent and overlapping with assessment that I talked before about a membership body trying to uh, be the voice of their industry and and, and being in. in international. Um, In the last couple of years, a US private equity house has been conducting what's called a roll-up. So a roll-up is where they consider what services a market requires and they buy businesses to fit into that jigsaw, if you will. So in the roll-up, back office and IT become shared and the the, the brands that resonate uh, are kept and the the brands that don't are are quietly sunsetted and the IP is supported as, as well so those organizations um invest but understand what 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 basket of services the um, you know, the membership bodies or the exam owners actually require and I think that's quite powerful you'll see a lot more of that over the next two or three years uh, once you get through the pandemic where um, investment companies will understand a lot better what goes into an exam um you know what what's in that heady brew as I always call it
2: yeah I think that when you look at some of the reactions to lockdowns which are obviously, um, a pandemic response, that's a very unusual situation and hopefully very much exceptional. So you have this kind of switch fire to remote invigilation and then a bit of a knee-jerk and you have the delivery um, done by whatever means necessary. Um, And then we've had, because it's gone on long enough, we've seen this situation where now exam candidates and learners are discussing this and asking for different things. And, you know, they're um, discussing the kind of the intricacies of the actual delivery and the the nuance of it. Um, And then at the same time, you've got, as you're saying, you're talking about investors who are potentially um, sort of understanding more about exam creation and exam delivery. Um, And it's interesting because it all sort of suggests that what should be happening is thought about the future rather than thought about right now. And... um, that seems, from what you're saying, to be a bit of an industry kind of um, trait because we were discussing earlier the kind of college admissions scandal over in the States and the fact that people are or have been able, in some contexts, to get away with their own sort of individual activities in the background without being scrutinized because there was no means of scrutinizing them. Getting everybody into an exam hall might not be particularly useful, but using um, purpose design technology in order to um, facilitate kind of independent third party monitoring of that kind of activity even if it is a bit more nuanced um, or even if it's very small scale kind of tutor-led assessments and Mm. private exams for um, you know one or two candidates we've uh, seen that the technology is there now to allow Uh, people whether it's the awarding organizations or whether it's independent third parties to actually monitor all of these different aspects of the entire assessment ecosystem yeah Um, and I think that well you would hope that that kind of greater intelligence and awareness would be uh, something that not only exam designers and delivery suppliers but also investors might be more aware of the fact that the the education technology meets the service providers and becomes something bigger. You know, it it always was, but now it's kind of maybe a bit more
1: obvious. The the rub um, is you're trying to measure something in a standardized way, uh, so everything fits in the box. And on the other side, you've got um, organizations and in in lots of places, you know, empowerment of learners, They've the, the, got a voice through social media you, you look at any reddit forums and yeah you, you'll pick up plenty about remote invigilation <laughs> um this isn't all about what's on the bbc website or on the telegraph or the guardian the mainstream guys this is all going on on the channels that's those learners are, are used to using and that's the rub how do you as an organization how do you engage with that discussion um at that level user forums are a part of that i don't think it's the full solution i think you know, it's a useful first step but you you're trying to um accommodate it's not the right word but you you're trying to understand the learners better uh, but appreciate the demands of a of a standardized environment because you you're, you're trying to at the end of the day create shorthand for does somebody know what they're doing you know that that shorthand that that can be easily understood and that's probably one of the the, the barriers um in terms of articulation to say We're going to move from a single grade um, of a three-hour exam to a deeper and richer understanding of what that person knows, how they're learning, how quickly they can learn, and how are they competent. So, I think that's a huge challenge for the assessment sector to wrap their arms around and and embrace to say the learners and those stakeholders or they've been empowered through through the pandemic um in terms of remote invigilation and learning from home and yeah they've been they've had that exposure they they, they know all the different techniques but you're still trying to deal with the, the standardized process that um employers and higher education institutes recognize that shorthand we we need to move away from that in in, in my view um you know, you can look at portfolio you look at different i, I um, ways of authenticating evidence from um, um, from trainers and from from different stakeholders, you know, people who are actually involved in that education process. You know, authentic- digitally authenticating that evidence is more powerful. You want know, advocacy statement from somebody to say, yeah, John has managed to you know build this brick wall in a certain way. He's used this technique. This is what it looks like, and then actually having John explain that. I think that's probably more powerful to an employer than. And a shorthand of, 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 a, of a B grade um, in a certain qualification, I think that's the chasm that we need. We next need to, to step to
0: so obviously we've discussed the impacts that the last 24 months have had on the industry but what i'm really interested in hearing from you jeff is what the future is going to look like you know when things are going back to normal when we're kind of coming out the other side what do you see
1: yeah there's been a real awakening um exam owners saw the pandemic as an existential threat you know if 80 percent of the revenue is uh coming from exams then no exams delivered mean you go bust you know it's that simple so for those um, exam owners whose learners are in, say, the emergency services or other critical jobs, they still need their ex- exams to go to work. You know, the, for, for them, that, that's non-negotiable almost. So um, the, the impact for learners, I mean, it, it, this has been super hard for the learners in, in, in some respects. I mean, trying to pass an exam is stressful enough without worrying about if you can find a test slot you know, at, at a centre. So... I think the industry did a reasonable job in trying to turn the taps on, either scaling uh, remote invigilation or you know trying to pivot away from testing delivery. But um, for me, here's what's interesting: I mean, the, the traditional suppliers were, were caught in the hop. Um, you know, it was a heady brew of you know, hubris, uh, defending their real estate, you know, defending their own business, if you like. So you, you have seen a lot of the what call before the new, the new wave come through and take advantage of that. Now, for the first time, I think, um, you know, through the pandemic, and we'll see more of it um you know in the in the short term, is that um, many exam owners are now turning to innovative suppliers, boutique suppliers that can move quickly. Um, because obviously they've had a bad experience that the traditional guys just couldn't move that quickly. So those suppliers are seeing revenue uptick, which is great. And I think What we'll see in that short to medium term is those guys invest in governance and systems that will level the playing field so that they can present that innovation and present that speed and um, freshness to organisations, examiners who who probably previously wouldn't have considered that. So that's the kind of short, medium term. I think the medium long is where the investors are now paying attention. So in prior to the last 24 months. Training organisations would probably see 80% of the attention with assessment 20%. You know, if you think you, you come in a garden, instructor-led training four days and one day for the exam, it, it's not dissimilar um, in, in terms of the attention. So I, I think uh, on the investment side, I, I, I think it's wonderful in lots of respects. Um, I saw a webinar um, by the UK Government's Trade um, Department on China on Monday and they commissioned EY and Parthenon to look at the level of financing for vocational education in china so in the I mean just to get some perspective on the, the of what's coming through here in the first half of 2021 the deal value was about 720 million pounds for the whole of 2019 it was 192 so that's a 275% increase um What's additionally interesting to that is the number of deals is decreasing. Now you might think, oh, that's not good. What, what, what's happened there? There's not enough deals. But it's, it's actually the value of the deal is, is going up. And if the number of deals is going down but the value is going up, that tells us that the market's maturing. It, it tells us that the the market and the investors are becoming more versed in what ed tech and assessment is all about, which is great. It, it's starting to look under those rocks. It's starting to you know, chip away at, at some of the, um, the old crusty um, you know, things that – have always been taken for granted nobody's ever questioned so i think it's all good um in in the short medium and long term i think what i said before about that um concept of the toolkit, uh i think that's still a frontier that still needs to be discussed um i think we've just come through a lot in the last 24 months so yeah once we've caught our breath i think that'll be the next place um i'd like to go to so, if we got any ideas about that toolkit and uh, my kind of <laughs> cup of tea, yeah, then,
2: you know, where are we going with yeah. magic space robots that <laughs> do exams whilst they're flying oh,
1: around? Oh no, I, I hate the use of robots. Um, any <laughs> sort of ed, 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 ed tech PR or yeah. it, it's it it just waters and uh, and cheapens the, the, the debate. What examples are there? I'm curious. Oh,
0: the, the,
1: the, there's there's one at the bet show either last year or the year before, and somebody was using a robot, um, you know, to do a certain task and always oh, it would be great to have one of these and oh yeah well that means robots are patient teachers and it's just oh mm, yeah d- d- shoot it's a daily out. mail
0: headline right there. yeah it's definitely
2: <laughs> um, it's all a helpful to debate no yeah. that kind of reductionism about um, oh yeah this is definitely the solution to that I think that uh, the trick is using things as complementary tools to help learners do different things like you said earlier about assessing somebody who's doing something very manual and physical um, and trying to provide evidence of that. I think that it's really interesting to look at um, some of the virtual virtual reality systems, which are now evolving and becoming better than they were. Mm. And the very rudimentary ones were a little bit naff in terms of yeah. the experience they provide, but now they're beginning to get really quite good. Um, and I read something interesting recently that was talking about how the the reality that's presented inside virtual reality doesn't actually need to be ultra high definition, incredibly detailed and so on, because your brain makes the connection for you. And you, so you feel oh. very immersed, even if it's only 30% resolution. I'm, I'm probably misquoting that. <laughs> um, and so you can see the benefit in terms of training applications, um, then in terms of assessment applications, I don't think these things are being used, per- a lot at the moment because the assessment methodology is still like we said earlier quite based yeah. on old-fashioned methods
1: um, Where, wherever there's risk um those sort of solutions are, are working well especially in the corporate space yeah. oil and gas and that kind of thing i think what, what one thing that might be holding them back is the, the service encounter um, you know, the especially given the pandemic, you know, nobody wants to put on a sweaty Oculus yeah. that's been through you know, seven or eight different, <laughs> yeah. different sweaty guys uh, that that morning. It, it's how, how do we get around that? Um, obviously, there's things like Google Cardboard that uh, are almost disposable in, in some ways, but you know, they do the job. Um, mm. So. Again, it's service encounter, You know, the, the price point, the availability of that kit. Um, when we talk about simulations as well, I mean, one of the things that's always held back Simulation is, well, is it accessible for everybody? Um, or if a trainer can spend 50 grand on a simulator for aviation or for driving, that's great, but that should be made available to everybody so that everybody has an equal chance of passing that assessment, whatever that looks like. So I think there's still some road to, to run on that. I think... Um, what we might see is um, identity systems becoming more into the mainstream for lots of different reasons, where you've got um, the certain UK organisations that um, now have an app which lets you use post office services, uh, you know, identity at the post office, and they're, they're using them for um, uh, age checking for for alcohol in, in, in the retail environment. Once those solutions become mainstream for certain um demographics of learners then be, yeah I, I use this to you know, go to the shops or to the post office or, or, or whatever it is or or, or or buy something online once that becomes mainstream then yeah it will we'll rerun that process again uh, that we did for paper to on screen you know it's used elsewhere why, why can't we apply it um when we're checking to see if this person is who they say they are doing the doing the exam
2: I think now is a good opportunity to, for people um, off the back of all the innovation of the past 24 months to be really future conscious and to be aware of the fact that time passes quite quickly when you're busy and so on. Um, and we now live in a world where um, Elon Musk, SpaceX are actively looking to colonize Mars um, at some point in the future. And it seems quite likely now when 50 years ago it would have seemed like utter madness. Um, And it's interesting. I I was reading as well yesterday about uh, the asteroid um, that uh, they were talking about potentially landing on. And I think it's really, um, you know, although it's very sci fi, um, considering things and working through hypotheticals, thought, thought experiments about um, how could people be regulated in terms of professional qualifications should they be outpost on uh, at an outpost on Mars you know living off off earth as people have been doing for the past it's uh, it, 15 16 years now on the space station um, I think that kind of future thinking can't hurt our industry if um, it's perhaps a little bit steeped in tradition and perhaps a little bit or recently mm. suffered a bit of a stumbling block um, as a consequence of that.
1: One thing I've learned is that uh, progress is never linear, um, it, it, and, and the cadence of, of that progress it, it can be interesting as well. Um, I mean, you know, relating to the, the space program, once we saw um, man land on the moon in '69, we thought, yeah, you know, we'll be able to we'll be on Mars by '76. Yep. Um, but lots of different reasons why that didn't happen, and, and again, it, it's quite bumpy and lumpy uh, to use the cliche. It's. um I think we'll, we'll I think we'll see that um we, we've talked before about um you know the blockers and the enablers and obviously the pandemic played its part but um yeah the, the um the, there's there's an interesting um perspective of when uh, policy al- aligns up with what could be done um now I, th- I think I think we're starting to get towards that point where moving um big swathes of general qualifications on screen was just not on, on the policy at all. Um, you know, we saw that in the OOs where we were promised all schools' exams would be online by 2009. Obviously, that didn't happen because of the recession and um, you know, malpractice. You know, you know, big, that was a big issue back, back then for certain for certain tests. But now it's starting to come back into that window. Um, it, it's essentially called, it's called, it's called the Overton window um, after a US policy person. And I, I think that change is, is, is just about to getting into that window so there'll be an opportunity for for lots of organizations to um, engage with that Um, and it's it's a shame because yeah to your point Ben we we could have been doing this you know 15 years ago without too much hassle in my view but it's only now where uh, the pandemic is a catalyst it's that that policy is is starting to get into the sweet spot Um, so yeah to what we talk about short, medium, uh, long I think in the short term that's really exciting um, for, for everybody in the, in the sector for actually policy and, and the ability to do something and have the backing from enough stakeholders to get something done yeah um, it, it's something to look forward to
0: Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today if people are interested in hearing more about you hearing more of what you say where should they find you?
1: Um, jeffchapmancom that's the easiest thing to do if you're into Twitter um, at Chattersman.
0: So if you've enjoyed today's podcast, why not subscribe, rate or review wherever you're listening. And you can also read a transcript at blog. And please get the conversation started in the comments sections by leaving your thoughts and opinions on what we've discussed today.